This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Welcome to the LTID Network podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and today I'm speaking with Sean Borre. Sean is the lead S&C coach at Eton College. He's been working in gyms since 1993, initially in the health and fitness sector before discovering the joy of working with young people in schools. His number one aim is to help kids leave school with a better understanding of physical fitness, and more importantly, the self-motivation to find ways to stay active long into the future. Whilst understanding the value of LTAD models, Sean's only metric of interest is participation. And from experience, he has found that once boys take an interest, many good things will follow. So, welcome to the podcast, Sean. It's awesome to have you on today. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much for the invitation. I think we've been speaking about this for quite a while, Rob, and you've suggested before that I come on. And, I, and I've always considered, well, the, the, I do what I do, but... Um, not necessarily want to be one of those people out there having to feel the need to share but uh, but thank you for being persistent and inviting me back well it's good because I think you've got some really valuable things not just your own experiences but ideas and, and you know thoughts on things so it'd be cool to dig into them so before we do that help us understand you a bit more in terms of the, the angle you're coming from give us a bit of an overview of how you got involved in sport and, and caught the bug of coaching well where do I start I suppose the bottom line, I was born into a situation where uh, non-traditional sports background. Um, my father, uh, when I was born, I suppose the first sporting event I was ever taken to in a carry cop was the Isle of Man TT. Uh, my father used to race sidecars when I was very young. Um, in fact, you probably see around me, I, I know listeners to the podcast won't be seeing this, but um, I'm sitting in my office that's got uh, the Grosse Prix uh, von Deutschland that, uh, from 1976, which is my father and uncle racing. There's a couple of Isle of Man TT trophies on the shelves behind me and, and just various yeah, bits of history from, from my family background that yeah, are important to me and, um, and certainly yeah, shaped how I got into sport. Um, and as a consequence of that, really, I, yeah, my most early memories of being around sport was to be in the pit garages of Brands Hatch um, you know, or, or Silverstone or wherever it was and basically you know, with myself and my cousin or you know, some of the little you know, entourage that, of, of kids that were around those parts we used to 
I don't know, just run in and out of the pit garages or or go down, get get a ride down to the starting grid on the on the sidecar of uh, the of the racing bike. Um, so basically, that was that was weekends for me. I, you know, I wasn't out in the park kicking footballs around or anything else. So you know, that we were we were traveling around the country to to racing circuits. And so I suppose it was for about 1976, 77, my father stopped racing sidecars and took up uh, motocross and enduro. And by that point, five or five years old, um, I was bought a little motorbike. And so whilst uh, our dads were off racing, we would be hacking around the, you know, the car park or any bit of wasteland. You know, it was either farmland or army land. And uh, yeah, just getting muddy, you know, riding fast, jumping over things, falling off. Um, so yeah, that was really, you know, you know, early, early influence. And I suppose from there, it was then, you know, from home, it was, you know, we were always outside and playing. I was brought up in East Molesey down by the, the river and um, had lots of open, open space and, you know, Whoever could climb a tree would be the one that slings the rope out over the yeah, from the high branches, and we'd swing out over the river. Um, yeah, I remember being yeah, progressive. Yeah, what's the first challenging tree you could climb? And that was rites of passage because there was always an older boy that could climb the next biggest tree or get higher up the tree. Um, which is actually something I've reflected on of late because you know, basically, come the first day of lockdown last year. I drove back to East Molesey and had a crack at climbing a tree that I remember climbing as a 10 year old. And bloody hell did it nearly kill me. I got up the tree and I had <laughs> hamstring cramp from turning myself upside down and clinging to the branches with my legs. Uh, and I managed to get up there and I threw my phone down to a chap who was walking by with his son and his dog and said, can you take a picture? So there's a 50 year old guy up a tree. <laughs> yeah, utter madness, 40 years later climbing trees. And apart from that, it was, you know, I suppose late 70s, you know, was the first craze of skateboarding in the UK, uh, you know, taking off the back of what, what was going on in the States. Roller skating was also big. And um, we were allowed to take rollers. We weren't allowed skateboards in school, but we were allowed roller skates. And you can have an awful lot of fun learning to skate. I remember the first time on a pair of skates, smashing my face into a metal post and taking half my tooth off to the point of, you know, some months later, you're lining up as many of your friends as you can on the ground of the tennis courts, skating as fast as you can and jumping over, you know, five, six people and whoever dared be the first or the last person for fear of their life. So, and yeah, it was kind of, I suppose my influences and enjoyment always came from the, you know, partly the excitement, the adventure, the challenge of sport rather than, you know, the normal of, of you know, working with a team, playing football, kicking a ball, scoring goals. Um, in fact, I probably uh, realised quite early on that I wasn't, my interests weren't great enough to spend the time to learn to play football. In primary school, I was, I was left footed and put out on the left wing and barely ever touched the ball during a game. One of my best friends was big into Nottingham Forest. So I thought, oh, in order to have some more to talk to him in the playground about, maybe I'll sit up and watch match of the day. And I remember staying, my parents left me up watching match of the day and I fell asleep in front of the telly. 
like that. I think that was probably the last football game I've watched in, in full. So, you know, it's, and it's continued. From roller skating came gymnastics, judo, which would be activities my parents would take me to. After that, it was, you know, alongside it was bicycles. So before even before the days of BMX, I remember my first bike riding down to the shops, trying to bunny hop onto a curb, snapping the bike in half. Um, getting a more robust bike in the early days of before mountain bikes as well. This bike had suspension on it. It was made by Yamaha and had suspension on it. Uh, I think within uh, six months, my mum had to drive it back to the uh, distribu distribution depot in Milton Keynes and get it changed because I'd cracked the frame, broken the seat post and buckled the back wheel. And I thought, boy, we thought we built robust bikes. And yeah, you know, we, we, we would just be yeah, out with friends learning to jump over stuff and you know, build ramps. And um, yeah, and if there were no features, you would just do ground tricks. You know, can you jump the bike on its front wheel, back wheel, you know, 180? Um, so I suppose then the most formal sport I was introduced in, my father once again decided he got he got fed up with racing sidecars, moved to enduro fed up with the enduro, moved to racing sailing yachts. And so my sister and I, I suppose I was nine years old, we got bought um, small uh, kids age racing dinghies. Um, the class of boat was called an optimist, little square, uh, square rig sail, um, flat fronted boat, but quite a competitive class. Um, so, you know, sat in the bottom of this boat, you know, got put on a sailing course and um, you go from sitting in the bottom, not knowing what you're doing and uh, fiddling around on the water to the point where if you were you know, involved in the sport for long enough, I remember going to my first national championships in 1981, um, not doing particularly well and still not at that point where I was enjoying it. You know, my sister was already advancing ahead of me, but we continued my parents would give up the time and take us to the events you know um, open meetings most weekends in the through the summer uh, the winter would be uh, club championships or a, you know, a racing series through the winter and so it was just literally the persistence and effort and the consistency of it that you find yourself coming further up the ranks to the point where you think actually i'm pretty competitive at this and to the point where I suppose 1983, um, you know, you're, you're racing in fleets of up to 120 boats at a national championship. There might be at a selection championship, I don't know, 80 odd boats racing. I was coming top five, which puts you in the realms of, you know, the top five of world's team and the next five go to Europeans. So over the you know, course of the next couple of years, I you know, qualified for two European championships and one world championships which um, you kind of think, actually, this is by the age of 14. You know, this is um, it's quite an opportunity, quite a niche sport, quite a, yeah, an incredible opportunity. It was quite a privileged sport. Um, and at that time, it took over all of my weekends. It took over every single holiday. So wherever, yeah, if it was an Easter break from school or a summer break, you were working out where the most accessible international competition was, whether it was in France, Belgium, Holland, Ireland, 
um, where the national championships were, were that year would be one part of the family holiday, where the Europeans or the worlds you were targeting were going to be that year was going to be the family holiday. Um, and yeah, there wasn't a lot of free time outside of school and sport. That was the existence. You know, and the free time was taken up not by doing more of the sport. It was taken up by doing the free play of being out on the BMX, still climbing trees, still just being active. Um, so, yeah, that, that was really you know, the early starters for me. It's kind of, um, you know, I, I joke with people that basically if, if you look at the list from motorbikes to BMX to gymnastics to judo to sailing, along with the sailing come all of the water sports, you end up water skiing, windsurfing, and the common theme is there's no ball. And so jokingly, my, one of my best mates at school, I, I ended up with the nickname Ball Games. Because if, if ever invited to play, I had so little experience, I'd be the one that just go, right, I went to play tennis, but I keep hitting the ball over the fence because I've never held a racket. So it's just um, just down to circumstances, I suppose. You know, the people around you influence what you do. Mm. So when was it that... that uh, pursuing a career in, in coaching and fitness arrived on the horizon. What was it that made you go down that route and progress to that route into what you're doing today? Well, I suppose it, it came as a part of, of all of that. You know, from starting to sail, it became a natural thing within the sport that, um, uh, that you end up uh, yeah, coaching and teaching others that are coming up behind you. So I remember the very first sailing course that I went to at a beginner as a beginner was a, at a small um sailing you know reservoir gravel pit lake down near to where i live now um and it was run by a chap um who became a family friend and there was a hardcore you know because that you notice in sports like that you end up with you know since your whole life revolves around it groups of of, of friends and family friends and inviting back the following year to support the next group of people coming through so even as an 11 or 12 year old you know the best thing about being invited back to come and coach on the next course was we were given the freedoms that kids don't get anymore you know the excitement as a 12 year old to be saying i can drive the launch so you go out and get the you know, the, the outboard engine you're given the responsibility to set up the launch safely you're allowed to go you know, go and drive the, the rescue boat around the lake as you're giving teaching instruction to, to younger people from the age of 12. So naturally, already, it, it was the done thing that you automatically became a coach and a teacher of your sport. So then basically going through school, um, I suppose it was 1985, I tried to change class of boat. I used to, for, for the small children's dinghy, it was, um, yeah, nobody can judge what the weather conditions are going to be. And when it was light weather, things are very technical. Uh, you have to be very poised, very intuitive. There's, there's very little physicality about it. But when it blew, and you're talking kind of, you know, four, six, four, seven, up to eight, you know, so, you know, um, strong winds through to gale winds. I loved the physicality of it. Some people would be scared and they wouldn't go out. I'd be going, great, bring it on. This is now where it gets physical. Um, and uh, as a consequence, you know, 
I saw the, the need to step up to a higher class of boat. Um, went, uh, went to start sailing, sailing lasers, not quite big enough. So at that point, um, decided, okay, well, if I'm not able to sail the boat physically at, at the size and scale I want to, I need to find another sport for the meantime. And um, I took up the, the option at school of, um, of rowing. And uh, I've got a nice picture on the wall here from Henley in, um, I don't know if you'll be able to see that in the background, yeah, yeah. Henley in 1989. And in the stroke seat of that boat is, is James, a young James Cracknell <laughs> with me in the middle of the boat. And people say, oh, oh you must have been really good at rowing. And I say, yes, he was. <laughs> but but the, same, the same was true, basically. You know, I, I threw myself into that. You know, once again, non-traditional sport. The only other sport choice at my school was hockey. And there was not a chance of that. You have to hit a ball with a stick, for God's sake. Um, so I rode for, for that period. Um, and sadly, during my A-level year, my father was killed in a sailing accident. Um, and that kind of set me into a bit of a tailspin. Um, I didn't do that well in my A-levels as a consequence. And basically, I, the school were very good in my year of leaving. That I went to Cramer College to retake two of my A-levels. At the same time, the school, it welcomed me back because basically we once again were part of a group where if you were involved, you were, you were welcome. So I spent my next year as an 18 year old uh, fixing boats in my spare time, uh, painting blades um, and coaching. So once again, it was the natural stepping stone, even though it wasn't meant to be you know, the career path I was potentially going to be on. Um, it just became that yet again, I find myself in a role of coaching and it was, it was a very natural and um, confidence inspiring thing to do. Very, very rewarding. Um, I suppose at that point, you know, my, I had made noises of before my father passed away that I might like to go on to Loughborough and study sports science. But yeah, even though you know, I suppose the influence was that um, you know, my father was, you know, work hard at a proper job um, and use sport as an outlet and play. Yeah. And he hadn't really put the connection together that you know, one and the same could be, you know, work within sport and, and play within sport. So I found myself... Um, at that point, still thinking I should be going off to do some engineering course, you know, A-levels, math, physics, chemistry. I was applying for things like electronic engineering. I ended up going to Southampton University and studying oceanography with physics. And the only tenuous link to the oceanography was the fact that, well, I'm a sailor and a rower is to do with water. So obviously that's the logical thing to go and do. And um, it's no great surprise that, yeah, still being on the you know, reeling from the death of my father, I was slightly off the rails and I, I spent more of the time in the university bar. Anybody at Southampton University will know clowns and jesters very well. <laughs> I knew it particularly well. Um, and yeah, it was the you know, best thing at that point that basically I wasn't ready for a, uh, you know, as traditional approach to, you know, studying some form of more sensible course. Um, I took time out at that point. My family business was a garage and my mother was struggling to 
to run the business on her own, obviously, yeah, having to deal with the circumstances of being on her own business to run. And so the easiest thing, I've been around that all my life, cars and bikes, every holiday I've worked in the garage. If we weren't away, I would work and fix cars. So I spent a year between university courses, working there full time. Um, thought, let's have another crack at this. Applied to Brunel University to do mechanical engineering with automotive design. <laughs> that was meant to be the sensible path. One year in, passing my first year, but basically thinking, well, I'm now meant to get a placement role. And at the time, roles were quite challenging. Um, the university just said, look, you know, um, go off and just work the summer, find a, find a normal job. A brand new health club opened up down the road from my house, 500 yards away. And I stepped my foot in the door and said, have you got any jobs going? And in fact, basically they said, oh, we need some bar staff. And that was it. Stepped into that environment in 1993 and I was sold. Yeah, it was vibrant. It was buzzing. It was right on the peak of the surge of health club booming business in the UK um and some of the people i met for you know through the gym who yeah some were sports science graduates others were uh, just done a ymca gym instructor course but I, yeah it was there was such energy and fun and all we were doing was throwing weights around and you know running and jumping and in just in a fitness gym um yeah the high energy of you know, we're on the the boom of aerobics, high, low impact aerobics, step classes just coming up. And yeah, it was just a great place to be. And that was it. Just said to my mum, you know, I wasn't enjoying uni. I'm going to stay here. And so I thought, okay, how, how to figure this out. And by the summer, I'd booked myself just on a YMCA level two fitness and circuit training course. Um, eight weeks later, thought I knew everything there was to know about training. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know. So, and that was the beginning of it, you know, I, I spent the next, oh Christ, um, I worked in health clubs until the, probably 2004. So, um, you know, it was either, I came straight out the, of, of the, the bar role was just to get the foot in the door. I was in the gym uh, at three clubs simultaneously, three part-time jobs. So, um, Rains Park, David Lloyd, I suppose was the most prominent it was a monster of a club with indoor tennis courts, massive gymnasium. Um, and just trying to figure out this industry that was you know, thriving and booming. And um, one day a chap came down to me and said, look, you know, we're setting up another business, taking over some contracts in some smaller facilities. Yeah, we're looking for people to be involved. Would you be interested? Come and have a look. And I got taken over to Maidenhead Rugby Club where there was underneath the stadium of the rugby club was um, a, a gym. And the gym had this real kind of heavyweight bodybuilding influence, which was ooh, pretty intense. But on the flip side of it, you also had the, the athletic you know, training of the rugby players as well. And even though the two weren't, yeah, Theoretically, one was an independent business and the, and the business of rugby was a separate thing. 
back in 94, we were probably just on the cusp of rugby becoming professional. It was still in its very early stages of, you know, players being contracted. So I think, you know, certainly Maidenhead was you know, very much an amateur club at that time. Um, there were one or two really big lads from the rugby boys. And you go, oh, have you been spending too much time with the bodybuilders? <laughs> you don't ask too many questions. But it, it was certainly an interesting yeah, dynamic and, um, you know, just to, to figure that there was this difference between what fitness training was when you were just giving advice to somebody about, yeah, staying fit and healthy, how that might transpire to somebody who was quite, um, how I use the word, obsessive, because I think that's probably the most uh, appropriate when we're talking about, you know, going down the bodybuilding route, it, it is all encompassing if you are thinking about um, competing. So looking at the, the depth uh, and the focus of some of those guys um, and the commitment you know, from the rugby players to also develop some athletic competency uh, with playing in mind, you know, you're starting to see the full spectrum. So where was that? About 95, that was. So, but after that, you know, it, because of the growing nature of health clubs, I found myself going off down the route of, well, I travelled at that point, went to Australia, worked in a number of different gyms out there. Personal training was just on the rise. So it was the difference between writing a one-off programme because these are, you know, safe movements and exercises and things that you could do to help you stay active through to if I'm going to train you on a regular basis and we are going to make steps and improvements what does periodized you know programming look like and um yeah did I even I suppose we, we were learning as we went through interest and reading rather than taking extra qualifications probably at that time the ACSM model of um yeah, looking at a more scientific approach was uh, was very commonplace at that time. So I looked into some of the information from, from that qualification. Um, but where did that take me? That, that actually probably at that point took me into a, a sideline that basically the gyms needed managing. You needed to bring new trainers through. I ended up coming back from Australia and taking a role as the fitness manager of a Homes Place health club in Kingston. At which point I stopped enjoying what I was doing. And this was 2001. And I went to a senior management conference for Home Space in Barcelona. They flew all the management staff out there. It just happened to clash with the MotoGP that was on at Catalonia. So whilst everybody was on this conference about, yes, how we run the best, yeah, most shiny and uh, excellent and expensive health clubs, and they're you know, slapping each other on the back for being awesome, I've sneaked out, <laughs> taken a taxi to the Catalonia race circuit, no suntan cream, got burnt to a crisp. And that whilst all these, my peer group were in this air-conditioned hotel, I arrived back at the airport absolutely burnt to shit and people look at me saying where have you been Go, ah okay <laughs> get back to the uk have a 
good conversation with, uh, with the with the senior management going yeah this ain't for me you know that thanks for the conference it was a great chance to get to the bike racing <laughs> see you later and i walked into david lloyd at that point and um there was a new club opening down the road from me in kingston and i i said look i would like here's my cv uh you know fitness instructor personal trainer fitness manager duty manager membership sales club management i'd like a job as a fitness instructor please and that was it so i went back to being gym floor don't give me responsibility give me the chance to influence the people on the gym floor at the same time i did that part-time and um began to run my own independent personal training business i had never considered working with kids apart from when some parents have said, would you do some work with my son or my daughter? You know, they, they're trying to get into the football team or they're trying to, yeah, or my daughter or my son has put on a bit of weight. Um, they started to get this inkling that some of the kids weren't as able as I thought they should be. Um, certainly not as able as I thought you know, physically I was when I was young. And um, my kids were at primary school down the road from here and they were also going to cubs and uh my wife volunteered me to go and do a, a fitness session for the cubs and i could have killed her i thought <laughs> what the bloody hell is that? i don't work with kids they're a nightmare you know i i don't understand kids i've got two of my own that's enough yeah and uh, i came away buzzing and glowing going when can i go back and do that again so then kids are at primary school and it came to the summer and the, my kids were meant to be involved in the after school athletics. And oh, you, you look at some primary schools going, there isn't anybody within the staff of this particular primary school that can credibly organise a competent athletic programme. So um, I just, my wife said, well, why don't you just go down there and get involved? So I did. But that, that was, you know, theoretically, when was that? Late 2000s and my first influence of working with kids in schools and loving it. So given that background, you can really see, and, and we've always had conversations about this kind of off camera and off, mm. off show, how your philosophy is, is less around competitive sport, given your background, but more around engagement, enjoyment and, and personal progression. So talk to us a little bit about that. What what does that look like day to day when you're you know teaching students at you know be it in a in a um, at Eton or in in one of your SNC classes? What, what is it about that engagement, enjoyment, progression that you're kind of delivering? Well, I suppose part of it is that I realised that when I uh, having been all competed out by the age of eighteen, I was done for with competitive sport. It had taken over my life to the point where, oh, yeah, I had stopped enjoying competing. But the, the, the common thing is, what, what do you do at that point? Do you let it go like so many people do? They compete through school sport, but actually it's only because they've been on the carousel and the conveyor belt. And they, have they become independent in their method and approach of, of training? It's, it's, you know, it's a few and far between that people will have the time to continue a team game at a competitive level post school and university. Working the life does not allow for it um so yeah to me it was important that you know i have not found it to be much effort to because my enjoyment of challenge enjoyment of you know the, the feeling of physical exertion uh and accomplishment you know is actually what drives me to to stay engaged 
Um, whereas for many, you take away the competitive element and that's it. They kind of go, I needed that to keep going. And I think actually there was something about needing to have encouraged an alternative motivator. It's not to say that sport isn't important and valuable. I, I 100% that believe that for most people, the opportunity to achieve their most, their highest sporting you know, accolades is going to be as a junior athlete. So we've got to exploit those. We've got to support that. We've got to encourage it. But it's not got to be the motivator, the, the sole motivator for somebody that wants to be active for life. And by consequence to that, I try to almost find ways to tap into the yeah, other ways to find motivation. And, you know, really, you're trying to find what are the person's interests. So, you know, when you talk about engagement, it's kind of saying, well, yeah, oh, well, I know you play that sport. And I know some of the stuff that we do will help you with that sport. That's fine. We, that's taken as a given. But tell me more about you and what can we do in here in this gym space or outside of this gym space that's going to you know, light your fire and make things interesting, exciting and independently um, you know, continuous for you. Um, and, you know, often basically you know, I'm, I'm using you know, physical challenge as a, a way forward with that because Guess what? We can all go into the gym and do our set of 10 squats and then our, you know, push and pull and jump and land and blah, blah, blah. What about, how about, can you get on top of that bar? Can you do a muscle up? What about those rings over there? Can you turn yourselves upside down? You know, what happens once you turn yourself upside down? Can you make a decent shape? Can, can you do a back, uh, a back lever? Can you do a muscle up? Can you do a a human flag they go oh, sir sir can you teach me how to do a human flag go well we can have a go yeah and typically at the end of a gym session you know i always try to leave them on something that's kind of wet their appetite so um it, it might be the fact you know we can teach a muscle up in one session because right yeah how are your pull-ups coming along well you have to work on those because you still can't pull all the way to the bar but let's stick a band up there get you up there and ping you in the air next thing you know i'm over the bar sir awesome um, or the youngest year group, you know, when they come in, there's nothing better than going on the gymnastic rings and getting upside down. And once they're yeah, twisted all out of shape with their shoulders and arms out behind them, you're going to think, well, that you're on your way to a pretty damn strong pair of shoulders there. And, you know, I think sometimes what we do when we look at things in terms of sports training can be a little bit too serious, clinical, prescriptive. And I'm not saying that you know, yeah, the, the, the meat and potatoes of, of, of strength training, as an example, yes, it's, not, it's good to have in the programme. Um, but the fun bits you know, need to add more than just frivolous edges. They've got to add challenge. And you know, so, for example, my first rule of ADP, so the Athlete Development Programme at, at Eton, is... Um, is don't die. And the boys know <laughs> so, so, so we, we, we judge the merits of the challenging exercise on the likelihood of getting out in one piece without dying. Um, and 
I think, you know, in many schools or many programs, we're worried about the health and safety component of that and saying, oh, yeah, we, we, we've got to check that our risk assessment is so damn safe that we've anaesthetized the fun factor. And so if I, to, it, sounds, it sounds like I take it frivolously by saying don't die, but actually it also means if I see you doing an exercise that looks like hold my beer and watch this, you know, I can say are you about to break the first rule of ADP. And I refer to the, the way we might allow them guidance and progression in the gym. Well, I'm going to give you two things. In one hand, I'm going to give you a map and a compass. But in the other hand, I'm going to give you a short piece of rope. Because so why are you giving me those? I go, well, the map and the compass is to help guide your journey, but it's your journey. So I'll help show you some of the exercises you might need to do because your body would benefit from them. And you can do some of the exercises that you'd like to do because you've come across them with your mates and want to have a go at them. The piece of rope is not quite long enough for you to hang yourself. And occasionally you get boys, you can you spot it once again, that actually they've thrown away the map and the compass and they've gathered every bit of rope that they can. You're going to go, aha, you're on your way yet again to breaking the first rule of ADP. So, you know, it's just, it's, you know, I suppose the gym for me is a much more organic place of learning. Um, we don't mandate training at Eton. Um, we just want to encourage it to happen. You know, health and safety might want anybody that's going to play rugby to make sure they come and train. They'll get an email from me or from their uh, master in charge of rugby to suggest that there are some certain times that we're making provision for them, but you will never get the full team. And why not? Because they're also engaged in other things. You know, you, you somebody who might be a, a solid, solid first team player, might be in the school play, he might be the keeper of a certain society, he might be studying for four A-levels, um, you know, could have any other number of commitments and, you know, playing rugby is one of the things he enjoys, but it's not his raison d'etre. So we've got to find hooks that say, actually, but I'll tell you what, you'll probably prioritise this because we're going to have a right old laugh when you come in and some of it's going to be pretty damn challenging. So, yeah, we've got to be careful not to anaesthetize training with so, such a formulaic approach. So it certainly seems to work. You know, at one point, I think out of 1300 boys in the school, you know, we have over 400, you know, volitional you know, participants of, of, of the training space. So I, I'd call that some level of success. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because there's a few misconceptions. And I know, you know, James and Mike have spoken a little bit about this in the first episode, that long-term athletic development is only about youth mm -hmm. because actually it's in the name long-term um, yeah. which comes down to well in order for it to be the long-term there's got to be an amount of longevity in it as you say if you get through school and you drop out after school because you don't have the time to do it or your only model of physical activity is competitive sport mm -hmm. then you know the number of conversations I'll have with people who are you know want to be active but I don't like the gym it's like well there's a thousand other things you could do other than going to the gym but people yeah. are constrained to this idea that being active means going to somewhere I don't want to do, don't want to go to do something I don't want to do. Whereas actually, if we're truly, you know, engaged in people for the long term, it's exactly what you said. What lights a fire for you? Is it walking up a hill? Is it going upside down? Is it going for a swim in the sea? You know, what is it that we can, from a long term perspective? Now that might evolve into someone who wants to become an open water swimmer competitively, but it might not. And both of that's okay. Mm. Yeah, indeed. I'll tell you just that on that very note. Um, before I worked at Eaton. Um, 
there was uh, a chap that I was introduced to in a pub in Isha, young lad, and um, uh, a friend of mine introduced me and said, uh, "Yeah, it was it was dad and two two boys, and um, it was uh, this young lad. He's uh, he's just come back from swimming the channel. Sixteen years old he was at the time. <laughs> just come back from swimming the channel. Go." my goodness what an achievement yeah you look at him it's kind of a really you, know, you didn't look at him and say athlete just boy 16 year old boy and uh, asked how this came about and uh, he said oh well one of my masters at school um yeah we went through some training and uh, he took a group of us and uh, we all you know, did the training readily swam the channel uh, by the age of 19 this boy had swam around manhattan island and if you've ever seen the Hudson River and and is it the North River on the other side around Manhattan Island? My goodness, <laughs> people can swim in that without dying. But by the age of nineteen, he had swum the island as well. And only yesterday, I was out for a, a walk around the grounds at Eaton, and the housemaster, uh, in particular Nick Adams, um, yeah, he's he was the chap in question that supported these boys through that process. Very unassuming, lovely, genuine chap, you know, caring, maths teacher, housemaster. And you would never know that he's one of the most accomplished open water swimmers there is. You know, probably swam the channel 14, 15 times in his over years. So, you know, there are some pretty impressive things going on around that um, yeah, are out of the norm of, uh, of you know, did I play first team cricket or first team rugby? So do you think then i mean it's kind of it's fairly obvious but a lot of these kind of ltid models and you know formulas and theories of this very kind of pyramidal thing based on performance mm. of so the best people from here will go to this level and this level yeah. but the the great caveat to that is if everyone drops out no one gets to the top no there is no elite performer if everyone's either broken or disinterested by the time we get to that under 18 level or under 20 level. So do you think we lean too much towards the performance side rather than the longevity side when it comes to LTAD? Sadly, I think we do. Because, for example, if you look at most adverts that come out for a strength and conditioning coach in the school, it would say to work with our elite performers. You go, oh, really? Uh, to work with the, some, some, a small proportion of the, the kids in your school who you believe are the gifted and talented. And actually, there's there's more merit in push from the bottom or lift from the bottom you know they talk of rising tide you know floats all, all, all ships um uh you know, theoretically if you want to raise the performance well how about you know how you know we capture this idea of early maturers and late maturers if we capture everybody it doesn't really matter boys will grow their boys will grow at different rates do i need to measure that no i just need to know that the boys will grow and you know just keep an eye on them this boy has problems with his knees he's probably just had a growth spurt you know we'll, we'll probably need to back off before he gets sore do i need to write that down and plan it and periodize it no i don't now, I'll, I'll give you an example i think sometimes that you know, the, the times that we get get it wrong or miss critical information when we take an approach which is driven by the sport and the outcome and this is probably where you know, schools and junior sport is is potentially going wrong when we're starting to you know the schools are trying to emulate the professional game you know, for example in conversation with des ryan um 
he uh, you know, has spoken at the PADSYS conference to directors of sport, and they're all looking for the marginal gains competitive edge. What's the biggest bang um, that's going to make my boys win? He's going, whoa, whoa, calm down. They're just kids. Yeah. Even at Arsenal, they, will they won't class them as footballers. They're just young athletes enjoying sport. And the most important thing is that they get an education. Um, and schools, yeah, typically, you know, the, the ethos of a school is about kids getting an education, but having a good experience of sport. But you do get some pockets where you have some pretty um, strong views that actually, oh, yes, yeah, so I must run a programme where our school is known for winning in this sport. And it doesn't always, you know, um, you know, it's almost sometimes too much importance placed on it. I'll give you a scenario which is you know, exceptional, but demonstrates where you know, it's possible to miss a trick on just generally how, I don't know, boys are just trying to find, as they're growing up, self-confidence, self-esteem, a sense of belonging, um and yeah behind a facade there can be many insecurities going on whilst i was at hampton back in 2013 one of our rugby boys uh i didn't coach him at the time we hadn't um i wasn't involved in the rugby program at that moment but i think was it within a week of him finishing his last a level uh he died from taking dnp which is a thermogenic fat burning. And if you do any research on it from a yeah, diet supplement, slimming aid through to bodybuilding forums, you will find how horrifically lethal it potentially is. And yeah, the inquest uh, you know, came down that you know, a death by misadventure or yeah, accidental death. Um, and yeah, the reflections on it as this boy was about to go on a summer vacation he was a fit young strapping lad academically strong was going to get his never saw his a-level results but would yeah he got his grades he would have gone to his first choice uni he played first team rugby but he probably just wanted to feel better about himself on the beach that summer on his long magaluf holiday or wherever it was and we missed that you know as a school as an organization as a, as a group of peers we, we, we placed importance on the academics we placed importance on the sport both of which were going incredibly well but somehow we missed the chance to have those conversations that yeah also why why would the boy not be confident body confident as he was as an 18 year old strapping rugby lad why did he feel the need that maybe losing a few pounds and taking this supplement that you bought on the internet could be yeah, wasn't a a risky situation and we'd never you know never crossed those ideas so i think you know i take more of a a well-being route and yeah so for example often asking a very open question you know, to boys about you know what's going on in your world at the moment what's the best thing that's happening what's frustrating at the moment um, and quite often you'll find that their answers are, yes, uh, you know, I went for the school play and I, I was pretty gutted I didn't get the, you know, didn't get a role. Or I'm in the school play and I'm loving it at the moment. You think, wow, yeah, these, the boys are giving up an awful lot of their time. And actually they're, the most exciting thing to them is, is not the academics or is not the sport. We've never asked the question. We've just made an assumption. Um, 
so yeah when we we look at these athletic pathways yeah i know we talk about you know knowing when to flex a yeah flex the load uh, and the yeah, intensities according to yeah the calendar and things going on but if you treat them as a group and i was guilty of that at hampton we'd have such a tight calendar at times it'd be to me it would be a group of boys whereas at eaton with the the fact i know they will come and go i treat them as individuals so we know them by name we know them to be more than just a sportsman um and i think it's important to know that yeah the, the priorities in their lives, the stresses or the drivers aren't necessarily what we might hope they are. You know, they're really down to the individual and you know, there's a coming together in certain circumstances where what we're doing as a group is the correct thing to do. But there's also a time to step back and say, actually, for you, you know, don't be in this group right now. You know, go and prioritise what it is you want to prioritise. And when you've got time, come back. Um, it's really interesting when you're talking about, um, you know, it being a wellness focus. I remember listening to Kelvin Giles at Jersey a few years back, and he's, he's saying, you know, the road to performance and to health starts with development. And, you know, I remember seeing a, a metric, um, I think it was a few years back, it was when, you know, someone had won the Premier League and they'd done a bit of a breakdown of, you know, what was one of the biggest factors that caused people to, to be successful. And it came down to the number of players they had available. Like, do you have your best players available? So for me, you draw those two conclusions. Okay, from a, a development perspective, we want as many people available, in inverted commas, mm. as possible, which means, are they turning up? Yeah. If not, why are they not turning up? Is it because they're broken or is it because they don't want to come? Mm -hmm. Because that's going to limit your first 15 rugby team straight away if you've got people on the sideline or you've got people who don't want to be there because they hate it. Mm -hmm. um, but then the performance, you know, you then give yourself the best shot of a good performance by making it as enjoyable as possible, mm -hmm. getting people to come back and keeping them safe and healthy. Mm. So it's kind of, to me, it's kind of productive that people take a performance focus because it's like, well, actually, if your primary focus was let's keep as many people coming back as we can from an enjoyment and a health perspective, you've maximized the pool of players you have to choose from from that first 15 anyway, mm -hmm. as well as having that longer term longevity focus. So I know it's really interesting because the, we, we obviously spoke before that there's only really one metric that you seem to care about at, at Eton, and it is people turning up, isn't it? Absolutely. It's the only thing I measure. I sod spreadsheets. I've got, I've got sign-in sheets on the wall. And, um, you know, my only justification is get the boys sign-in. I can tell. I, I used to do it by house. We have 25 boarding houses. And if I had a boarding house that has 50 boys in it, and I look down their sign-in sheet and there's 25 names on it. I know that's an active house. I know where the, the, the boys in that house, they're having good conversations about exercise or sport or... Um, and when I go and sit with them and I might go to a mealtime at a lunch or a dinner and the housemaster might give me a chance to say, if you are sit, you know, sit in amongst the boys and we'll just chat. Um, yeah, I'll compare my plate of food versus their plate of food. Uh, considering they're the ones that are meant to be more active um but then you know, I might get a chance to chat with them and if you know it's an active house the conversation is about I don't know you know answering questions that might be curious to them about some of the things that they're doing whereas I might look at a boarding house that only has three to five boys signing in and I might go okay well I know the housemaster of that house is a musician um, but it's also important perhaps for these boys to be active and healthy. So I might start the conversation with um, 
Yeah. What kind of things outside of sport and gym that might not be their bag are they doing to stay active and healthy? Yeah. And yeah, do they value it and, and place importance upon it? And, and how do they solve that in a way that will keep them healthy and able to keep playing music or doing what they do? Um, beyond that, you know the the stresses of school life whether it's exams or not you know what's the point me checking for i don't know the metrics of how strong you're getting if, if i'm checking strength you know before you know it you've got ego lifting going on uh we can encourage boys getting stronger they're going to do that anyway um i don't need to measure it boys are going to grow they're going to get bigger are they moving better how do we measure whether you're moving better yeah, it's a difficult one to put in a spreadsheet so we don't bother you just say are you being active and when we coach you um can we see that there are things that are moving forward it's it's much more fluid mm. so yeah, certainly work so, so you mentioned before already a little bit around you know some of the maybe challenges you've implemented or even just some of the activities so you know if we were a fly on the wall in terms of some of the sessions or programs that you're running, <laughs> what, what does it look like what does it look like for the, the innocent bystander? Oh dear. Um, well, I don't know, but uh, utter chaos probably. Uh, be before COVID, we used to let all year groups come in at any one, any time, literally open forum. And basically see, so you've got some fairly progressive guys chucking some weights around. I don't know, um, in the middle of the room, just on Tuesday, I have a C block boy, he's uh, lower sixth and he's overhead squatting 120 kilos. <laughs> you know, just going, mate, that's impressive. Uh, it took him three cracks. The previous, uh, I, I challenged the fact that, you know, yeah, body weight, he said, I surpassed body weight. So, um, uh, yeah, let, let's see where we can take this because somebody had lifted 100 kilos last year. And so he's going, do 100. So again, then I'll have another go, I'll do 110. Then I'll have another go, do 120. He had three cracks at 120 and on his third attempt, got it. But you know, so you've got chaos like that going on. This is the same lad can squat 205 and it's a clean squat. You know, there's absolutely, there's no sticking point and it's the speed from the bottom. Um, what else might be going on? You'll have some guys that are up on the rings developing muscle ups. Um, so they're building their pulling strength. They're you know, switching to dips. They're up on the gymnastic rings. The ropes are hanging. Inevitably, I, th I think there's something about, a, um, layout and design of a space which almost lends itself to what activity you're likely to see and what i inherited was a heavy lifting culture and i needed to get a handle on it and manage it back slowly to be a more an athletic culture but to do that successfully i couldn't just hide the fact it was a weight room so it can pretty much when you walk into the space, just going, okay, I can see how I'm gonna end up squatting or benching in this space. So we still see a lot of that. Um, inevitably, you know, sometimes there's just themes, somebody will spark off on an idea and suddenly it's an activity. You know, where we've got boys that will come off the athletics track and they're, they're jumping and rebounding. And next thing you know, we've got actually you know, the mechanics of jumping is just becomes the challenge of the afternoon um and we just play with it as much as we can before letting them off to yeah there's some more standard programming or saying that programming i don't write programs 
it's another thing that I just don't, you know, don't feel the need. And often I find a program, you know, if I can teach a movement, yeah, you've got much more to get. The boy will show me a program and say, yes, basically this program says this exercise to this net number of reps. And I say, okay, we'll go off and do that and I'll come and help if I need to. And you see that he struggles to maintain, maintain tension or hit the, the difficult positions, the bottom or the top of each movement. And by the time you get to him, you, uh, you say, look, on your next rep or your next set, do this. And he'll say, oh, no, sir, I finished on the exercise. And so almost the program, he said, I, I, I went up and down X number of times. I got a bit tired. But what about your movement quality or movement skill or outputs did you develop? I don't know, sir. It just said to, to, yeah, to squat or to push or 10 times. I did it. Okay. So theoretically, when you go in and you start to, you know, to get the opportunity to say, actually, I don't care how many we do or how many times we repeat, we'll repeat whilst the going's good and the interest to be coached and engaged is there. And we'll work towards improving the quality. And if that means we've done 50 squats rather than 15 squats, that's what we'll do. Uh, if it means that the your sacred cow of the back squat has gone out the window, and in fact, we've developed a front squat and prefer the body tension or we've gone to overhead and we love the body tension and the arm yeah, and driving position, then yeah, that's where we'll take it. We'll bin, bin what exercise they might well have thought about doing. I've got some boys that might just come in the gym and say, sir, can I ride the unicycle? <laughs> <laughs> sir can i have a go on your bmx sir why have you got a bmx in the gym okay well sometimes i'm a bit lazy and it's easier for me to cycle from a, for, to see each of you to um yeah than it is for me to walk around you go oh really <laughs> so you know I, I suppose i take this ethos of anything goes don't take yourself too seriously don't die covid restriction don't lick the equipment that helps um had a boy earlier the week he was deadlifting uh and he was trying sumo and there were two red lines that were looking you know more and more like blood down his shins on each rep he's going well, yeah body feeling yeah this is this is moving towards you know too much blood on the outside is going to result in death covid guidelines we could do without blood on the bar you know so you've got a coaching opportunity so i don't know it's really interesting because chaos, we we probably as coaches lean a lot more to the structure because it's clean and it's black and white and as you say i know you've got three sets of 10 on back squats but the danger is we go too structured and we lose the engagement and the enjoyment and on yeah. the flip side something with a lot more flexibility and a, and a bit less structure a bit more fluidity yeah. of i'd like to do this this week and yet you're seeing massive amounts of engagement from a completely voluntary basis. I mean, I've, I've had programs where training is mandated that people don't even turn up as much as they're turning up at your place. So you're obviously doing something right. And maybe we need ex-coaches to be a bit more flexible with our approach. Yeah, I, I suppose in some ways, I don't know. As, as a coach, I'm exhausted by the end of the day because I literally, I, I get in and I have fun with it. I physically um, get active with it um it's about the qualities of of what happens rather than the counting of numbers you know shoot me now if basically all i'm ever going to see is squat bench and dead with bloody numbers being you know written up on the walls um you know i think um 
Uh, I don't know. I just um, not writing programs is not out of laziness. It's almost as we say now. It's it's the limitations and the constraints that that might put on our thought process and just you we're coaching organic beings with factors of influence uh, on their ability to engage and progress that are way outside our understanding yeah we don't have time to ask enough questions to know whether actually that person is in an emotional state you know i've had boys in tears saying sir right now i just need to do this you know and you go okay great yeah what is it is the punching bag or it's the something it doesn't matter yeah if that boy yeah as long as it doesn't involve too much rope yeah he still might have thrown his map and compass to one side you go mate right now go for your life and um this is the other thing we get we we the discipline that might be expecting in sports coaching and in schools um as a child at school i, I think um one of my best things to do was to go and wrestle and grapple and we you know, call it play fighting and some you know you come out physically exhausted and you go right you know you, you would know who your opposition were and there was a hierarchy of yeah don't go against him he's pretty damn strong he's going to pin you to the deck or or throw you over his head and it, we would never do it in malice you'd never uh, do it to hurt somebody and i in Back in the day, uh, yeah, the cane was still a thing, and I've had several whacks of the cane outside the headmaster's office, face to the wall. So what have you been up to this time, Bore? Oh, uh, play fighting, I hear. Oh, no, no, fighting, I hear. No, sir, so we weren't fighting, we were playing. <laughs> and I'll get the cane for it. And so if, I, if you leave a, a room, a gym, space, knowing that most of your equipment is away, but there might be some exercise balls, big you know, um, stability balls, floating around space what are boys going to do they're going to boot them at one another they're going to grab hold of them and run at one another and then you know uh, my gym is in squash courts and i would go up on the balcony i'd hear the chaos going on i'd be looking over the balcony and watch boys literally going for one another. Think, bloody brilliant bring it on and um yeah occasionally there'll be a boy that gets his head knocked between the ball and the wall and go well stuff will happen you know if you don't want to be around this rough and tumble step aside and take it down to your own pace or rough and tumble with somebody who isn't quite as boisterous as as the guy that got your squash but if if the boys suddenly clock you if I, instead of going to the balcony i went to the door they would literally stop and stand to attention expect to be read the riot act and be in trouble okay no boys you don't do enough of this carry on just don't break rule one <laughs> so yeah it's interesting because in i think program. um it's one of those things like people might from the outside like you say organized chaos and i think it takes an experienced coach to be able to balance that chaos and order and i think you know new coaches who are fresh to the, to the industry or, or don't have that experience the, the structure helps because i know exactly what i'm trying to do and i can do this you know very um you know, autocratic method of you stand here you're doing that because you know there's almost a little bit of insecurity in my coaching but as i get more experience i can loosen up and be and go do you know what it doesn't matter if you want a front squat instead of back squat today we're no. getting the squatting movement or and even then you know the, the more advanced you get it becomes a mr miyagi wax on wax off you don't even know what you're doing but yep. 
I can tell you when we do this, you're getting 12 squat patterns. When you're doing this, you're getting pushing, but you just see fun. And isn't that the best way of getting it? You know, we look at the research of things like, why do we get more out of players in small-sided games than conditioning drills? Because it's more fun. You know, you don't need to be a genius. You know, it's not necessarily that you're, you know, you're the magician in creating constraints, but it's like, how can we hide these, this, you know, broccoli in our meat and veg that people want to do it instead of me saying, right, lads, it's time for conditioning. Yeah. And, but it takes an experienced coach to be able to get that balance right. Yeah. I I, I don't, think necessarily age is the thing or whatever or, or confidence or, or complacency whatever it is you know um yeah yeah tom green at st peter's at the moment is yeah, speaking a lot about you know uh management of groups and discipline and i'm thinking okay that's all well and good but yeah, perhaps maybe in the circles i choose to coach discipline isn't you know i don't in the in the private school network typically discipline isn't your primary issue um yeah but we don't do enough fun and you'll remember from the UKSCA conference pre-con with Tim and Jacko School of Calisthenics yeah they had any number of coaches upside down and in the air on high bars doing calisthenics with actually the science behind having so much fun was you know building strong robust shoulders getting into difficult positions and feeling confident that your arm wasn't going to dislocate, which could be a problem on a rugby pitch. Uh, and then after that, you know, with, with Tim and Jacko, that, that was really basically, I, I speak to them as often as I can. And, um, you know, that's where the, the, the calisthenic challenges, I think, are just awesome. What was the session we did after that? That was um, an MMA, you know, uh, Ultimate Fight Club, shrimping around the floor, grappling and stuff with... Um, Help me out, name coach. Duncan French. Duncan French, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, led that session. And what were we preferring to do as adults was be big kids. Now, the challenge I think with teenagers that I think we need to balance up is when I work with younger groups, they want the fun, they expect the fun, they thrive on the fun, they don't want too much formality and process. There's a point in adolescence where there is a little bit of too cool for school that come come in, taking themselves potentially too seriously on their own athletic journey. And so that's just playing a nonsense. Yeah, I must do this serious professional program. They go, really? All you're doing is just taking the smile off your face and taking the fun out of it. So and then basically it's only later on, perhaps we come back to thinking, it should have always been fun. And I see boys come through, I don't know, with the, the weight of the world on their shoulders about the importance of the progression and the formula of the program saying, what's missing for me is you no longer love your sport. You've taken it too seriously to the point where the importance you've placed upon it, that failure you know, in your mind is like it looks like bereavement and grief experiencing <laughs> going well bring back the joy um and i think you know we've got we've got to be careful how we uh, certainly as a coach i try to play that balance of yeah we take it seriously yeah there's some formulaic process to this so you can see how we are taking it seriously but please don't forget the fun so mm. That leads quite nicely into something we were talking about off air, which is 
the kind of rise of, of jobs in schools and, and people having various different reactions to it. But one of the things you were kind of mentioning was that there's the potential to kind of make of it what you will in terms of an opportunity, isn't it? Mm. Well, certainly when I chose to work in schools, I, I used um, I, yeah, networking. Is, I've never applied to a job advert ever. Um, I, my first step into a school was to walk into my old school where the director of sport used to be my PE teacher. And um, he just remembered me as somebody that just enjoyed being in PE you know, back in the day. Um, so he was happy for me to speak to the sports coaches and because I had links with rowing I went and met the new director of sport at the school is a director of sorry director of rowing at the school and uh, said look you know uh, I, strength training is still going to be a key part of what you guys do any chance that I can come down and observe some sessions and um, if I feel I've got anything of value to offer you know would you mind uh, I'll just jump in and offer some coaching yeah, uh, we certainly didn't go in with the, you know, I've got a skill set that you need type approach because, you know, all you do is build barriers. Um, and so basically that became very organic for me. And, you know, at the same time, I backed it up by saying, you know, this, this was my point of, of a, it was a fundamental choice to change from being in the fitness market, personal training market. I made that step change knowing it would only ever be a part-time role. And in the first instance, unpaid and you know, voluntary of my time. And it would give me a chance alongside when we were both at St. Mary's doing our masters. Um, I started to get the opportunity to network with people. And um, one of the situations, and I, I don't know whether it's a case of, you know, if, you, if you're a people person, you just know, you know, end up with networks that I chose to hang around when I knew a particular chap from the GB rowing junior coaching program was going to turn up at the school to see some athletes. And I said, you know, this guy, uh, Richard, he's uh, known as Thrust. And I said, hi, hi Thrust, nice to see you. And he, uh, he turned to me and said, oh, I, I heard you had, had um, come down here and done some coaching. And he sparked the conversations um, saying he was at Hampton School a few years ahead of me whilst I was at Kingston Grammar way back in the 80s. We had an ex-girlfriend in common. So the conversation, instead of talking about rowing and training and conditioning and the role to play, it was kind of, yeah, I went out with her before you. And he said, oh yeah, I went out with her after school and I was actually engaged. <laughs> so it's kind of, the conversations and the relationships that then became an invite for me to go and um, coach at the junior development camps. I then get to meet other coaches from other schools. Before I know it, I'd got some great relationships with other coaches from other schools, uh, some invites to go and do workshops. And before that, basically, yeah, the next thing I know, I was working at Hampton School, and once I was there, it was, you know, the schools are all very different, and this is the, the crux of the issue. There is, there are, the similarities are that schools that are there to achieve academic outcomes, sport is valued and important, um, an, an important part of education, but it's not the fundamental. Some schools take it more seriously than others. 
And that's down to the people and their experience in that school. Every situation is different. When I was at Hampton, I ended up teaching maths uh, off the credibility of having a, an A-level in the subject from, I don't know, years back. And the school was welcoming me to, to do so, pointing out that schools are for academic qualifications, that their priority is a business. And at the same time, I'll never forget this quote. And after all, PE teachers are 10 a penny. And that stuck with me because that was harsh. Uh, but it showed potentially the hierarchy of value placed upon certain roles in certain schools. Um, certainly that opportunity for me was to make of it what it will. I was teaching PE eight periods a week. I was teaching maths up to GCSE level, which was frighteningly difficult for me. Um, I was head of lost property. Important role. <laughs> yeah, role. That, that was a role that came with his own parking space. It was the his, head his, as well, not just the assistant. Well, the head, I, I gave myself the title. I was the only person <laughs> to judge lost property. But um, yeah, I was head, head of that role and I came with a parking space. So that's cool. Uh, what else did I do? I coached rowing. I ran a wakeboarding club, took 30 boys every week down to the lake to go wakeboarding. Christ, you know, I was so damn busy. When I approached Eton, um, it was very different. I approached them just on the conversation about the fact they'd built a mega strength training facility down at their rowing lake. And they didn't have in mind to have a strength and conditioning coach. They had some teachers running a, a fairly intensive powerlifting program. Um, so theoretically, you know, you know I, I started a conversation which took four years from the start of the first email I sent them. You know, I had a, a meeting with them within three or four weeks, but it literally it took three years to confirm a job and just under four before I started it. Um, and it was, you know, it, it still is a very organic and changing situation. So I don't know, getting back to you know, the thought of this, this point is the role of S&C. There was another school the other day advertised three roles, a director of well-being. The, the job ad work was, was four pages long and it was a senior management role. Really what they wanted was a, um, a counsellor, a head of counselling. So, uh, but theoretically, physical well-being. Well, if you speak to any counsellor, what they want is physical health will help breed a more positive mental health. So it needed to link into physical health somehow. It need, would need to link into PE sport etc to be successful i'm not sure all counselors tap into pe and sport successfully i generalize the advert this same school put out for a graduate assistant in sport was at least a full page of a4 in job description they also at the same time put out a, a role for a strength and conditioning coach which was three lines and i thought you yeah, not all schools, I think we take ourselves too seriously as strength and conditioning coaches, expecting that we should be taking more seriously than three lines. Um, I think using the banner strength and conditioning coach pigeonholes ourselves too much. I class myself as somebody that's, I don't know, I just teach physical stuff, physical education. Um, I'm not, a, at Eton, I'm not classed as a PE teacher. 
but I was one at Hampton. But I, I still teach physical stuff, so I do physical education. Um, yeah, I think there's a, there's other advert now that's put out this idea of head of strength and conditioning. Well, maybe yeah, and and also positioned it that it's a stepping stone towards you know, our last three heads of strength and conditioning have gone off to play professional sport or to coach professional sport. I think, are we not looking at the wrong way around? Because if you work in pro sport, your A, job security is not fantastic. B, the salaries aren't going to be fantastic in that situation either. C, you're probably going to be dictated to engage in only very few practices for fear of negatively influencing as much as you can be positive influencing not to take away from the training process because there's too much money at stake in that business add to that your time is not your own because you will be dictated to me that's a young man's job that is the job if i was coming out of uni now and i didn't have a family i didn't have a, uh, a home that i want and a wife that i wanted to spend time with and kids that i want to spend time with I would go for that role, yeah, for the professional sport role. And when I feel that actually I've exhausted those opportunities, I've probably bounced from a couple of jobs because I was made redundant a few times. I've learned certain things in certain jobs, some good, some bad. I'm going to take those learnings and then just go to this calmer place where actually in order to be successful in a school, well, if, if the school starts at year seven and goes through to year 13, if I don't stay seven years, I'm not going to see one cohort through. And for me, at 13 through to 18 at Eton, I need to do five years to see one cohort. So in fact, the longer term roles, the evolution of a role, the more balance, the, the, the more, uh, you know, uh, job security comes within schools. Um, I think it's the other way around. And it certainly is already. You look at directors of rugby and directors of certain sports, you know, directors of cricket, directors of a sport. They come from, they've done their sport career. And then they go to the school once they've got a family and when they want a bit of a calmer life with an organised schedule that works around school terms. So I think almost it needs to, you know, this idea should be flipped. But that being said, whatever the opportunity is, the bottom line is, and don't point complaining about what role is offered because you know, all you're doing is spouting hot air to people that you know, also refuse to take jobs that don't value them. Put your foot in the door and just see if by experience and influence that can evolve to something. And if it's not working out in that space, it's easier to go from a job to a job already in your coaching realm than from, I refuse to take a job until they put a title and a salary that I think he's right. Yeah, I think that's that's massive. I've spoken to a lot of people, and and actually, I think the crux of it is, as you've mentioned, in in private schools, a lot of it can be keeping up with it, keeping up with the Joneses in terms of well, they've got one and we need one. We don't actually know what that person's going to be doing, and we don't really properly know how to evaluate them. But we know Millfield has one, so we'll get one. But realistically, if you go in there and you have your wits about you, you could start to evolve that job description into what you want it to be, to yeah. be a whole school thing or to be yeah. physical activity oriented or to be performance oriented. But realistically, a lot of the times the school itself doesn't have a full understanding of what you do. 
so you can guide that process to be well this is what i think we should be doing yeah yeah i the, the crazy thing is i i influenced and changed things at, at hampton in a way i thinking oh my god i showed too much willing yeah <laughs> actually yeah from from being a part-time uh strength and conditioning coach starting just the rowing program the rowing coaching my god my rowing cv of, of credentials is bloody fantastic you know I didn't intend on going there as a rowing coach, but you know, basically, yeah, had some amazing successes with crews and worked with some amazing people. Before I knew it, showing willing meant that you know, as I joke about taking on the role of head of lost property, you know, there were more boys that knew me around the school and more staff that knew me because actually, the easiest thing to do was empty the bins after the sports fixtures. Um, on a, you know, on a Monday morning, I go around during assembly, collect everything, sort it out. By lunchtime on a Monday, I'm delivering packages of kit back to school rooms and saying, uh, excuse me, miss, uh, but uh, two of your boys have got their kit here. Uh, do you mind? And yeah, they let me know if it was appropriate. If it was, oh, we're in the middle of something, it's going to go, okay, well, here's their stuff. Don't forget it again. Or if the uh, yeah, master would say, oh, yeah, that's okay, Mr. Bore. Uh, what would you like them to do today? I said, well, what do you reckon, boys? You reckon press-ups or squats? So <laughs> we would turn delivering lost property back into a hook that meant that some boys in front of their peers end up, you know, I don't know, class it as bullying, but the way we deliver it would be kind of, yeah, we, we get some physical task out of the boys. And uh, right, we'll see you in, a, in the gym later then off the back of it so you just make of it what you will um but eaten now you know well, i suppose my frustrations would be that uh it's such a big school it's so you know full of tradition in the way that certain things happen there are many facets of school life that all feel like individual silos of um and more collaboration integration between certainly between us and and the PE department would be useful, but they're not forthcoming. And you know, perhaps those are the things that in this particular institution I find challenging, frustrating, and you know, at times you know, taxing and wearing of my own you know, well-being of how I feel about things. But, um, interesting all the same. I think you know, for anybody who's going to consider working in schools or the longevity as a coach in sport or strength and conditioning or whatever, your own passion matched with the environment in which you get to deliver, I think you have a, an, um, a responsibility to keep it fresh and interesting for yourself. And I think, yeah, there's no guarantee that, yeah, the situation that you find yourself coaching in is going to be the right match for you. So, yeah. You've got to yeah, keep with an open mind, keep looking and and, and shaping it as, as best. I don't know. So what's next on the, on the horizon for you in the next 12 to 18 months? Any projects coming up? Well, there's a lot of stuff going on at the school. As I say, basically, um, if you if you ask me back over the last you know, couple of years, you know, perhaps you know, some of the... Um, some of the frustrations I've had were, you know, I was looking for more integration. Um, that's not likely or imminent. Um, I've you know, 
careful and cautious how I say that I made the most of lockdown, certainly enjoyed and made the most of that, certainly with interests and hobbies and doing other stuff. Now we're back in the thick of it moving forwards. Uh, certainly Eaton are, we're in the midst of building 70 million quids worth of sports facilities. You know, our, our sports facilities are archaic um, and need updating. So basically it's been a long, long time coming, but the, you know, the, the new swimming pool and small sports hall complex will be completed in September for an October handover. We will do a partial um, kind of reorganization of where we train out spaces at one year after that. So this time next year, <clears throat> excuse me, the building we're working in currently <coughs> is due for uh, knockdown, so handover for demolition. So the program that I run will move space and we will move into a temporary space potentially in a gym that closed down during COVID uh, that's attached to the sports centre. Joking yesterday with somebody that that gym used to just be a, um, the equipment store, the javelin store, they joked about it. It's like, oh, great, I'm out of one squash court with no windows and I'm into the store cupboard. So, but in two years after that, the new sports complex that will be built, the ADP gym will be, it's 800 square metres of space on the top floor. So the only challenge is how are we going to deal with having you know, tons of weight up there, but we'll be 50 metres long with running track. Um, I envision um, you know, zoning the space through from having a gymnastic style, you know, reactive floor that basically even when there's no equipment, basically your, your surroundings inspire you to move athletically with spring and, and um, um then to move into a space which would be, I don't know, getting back to my calisthenics love and just that challenge. If you look at, uh, imagine a, a rig with the versatility to say calisthenics uh, and parkour meet Ninja Warrior. So we don't have to go and lift, lift heavy weight to go crazy and have fun getting strong, you know, with rope climbs and rings and bars and monkey bars and stuff before you have the weights area just tucked down the end or a fitness-based gym off on the side yeah that's going to be quite an impressive space um yeah may, maybe i'll still be there in a couple of years time you know it's um yeah certainly most likely unless um yeah i always keep my i keep networking i keep speaking with people um you know, if there's any interesting things yeah. I moonlight a bit with uh, black box during the summer do gym fit outs so that you know, the spanner monkey in, in me that basically says actually lifting heavy equipment and bolting it together is also quite fun in the holidays I still do some sports coaching for coaches run a couple of qualifications on behalf of British rowing to their coaches on strength and conditioning God knows what else. <laughs> <laughs> let's see what comes along, Rob. Retirement. Let's let's wait for that one to come along. <laughs> how about that? So for those who are interested in following you a bit more closely or kind of following up, how can they get hold of you or find you on social media, etc.? With, with great difficulty, mate. With great difficulty. <laughs> Don't want to be found. Um, I am. I did do a profile on LinkedIn. I just thought, okay, if I was going to put 
a profile anywhere that you know that can just sit dormant i'm not active on it um i love a conversation i'm not very good on email <laughs> so if anybody ever found ways of getting hold of me even by linkedin then basically they're more than welcome um yeah they're more likely to have a conversation with me as i'm driving and chat some nonsense than anything else brilliant well thanks so much for your time today Sean. it's been awesome to hear your experiences and your ideas and your thoughts especially around the engagement piece i think that's really an important conversation to have mm -hmm. so thanks for your time today well absolute pleasure great to speak and i can't wait to see you again soon yeah it'd be good to catch up and uh, get a lift or some some muscle ups in yeah indeed all right fabulous all right great to speak anyway so you take care if you enjoyed this episode there's a number of simple things you can do to help support the podcast First, hit subscribe on your chosen podcast player so you're kept up to date with the latest episode releases. Second, you can leave us a review to help us reach more coaches and parents like yourself. Third, you can send this episode on to a coach or friend to help spread the word. And then fourth, you can find us on social media.